Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 210. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 210 you're listening to. My guest today is David Strite. David is a producer, engineer, and mixer. He is located in Portland, Oregon, and he works primarily out of the Hallowed Halls, which you might recognize because in July of 2016, we actually interviewed Justin Phelps, who is one of the principal engineers there at the Hallowed Halls. That was WCA number 82. So feel free to stop on by and check that out. But David Strite is coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee. I'm going to make some myself. I'm actually here in the kitchen. We're going to fire up the little monster coffee maker here. Let's do that. Grinding the beans. And, of course, we are cracking the sky with the Mastodon Coffee from Dark Matter Coffee, courtesy of Nick Statina. Thank you, Nick. Happy holidays to you wherever you may be. I am going to be in Michigan by the time you hear this, but I am currently in my home based in Lafayette, California, and it is absolutely foggy outside as as it can possibly be. Today is a a fantastic day to to share with you for myself. If you have been a longtime listener of the podcast and we've talked, of course, endlessly about approaches to money and financial stability and not getting in debt and all that, making sure that you've paid off all your gear, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I am happy to announce that as of this episode, I am actually debt-free for the first time in I don't remember how long. Paid off the car, paid off the credit card debt. Uh, Much of it had to do with my previous studio, which was, you know, as most of you know who listen, it was the major reason Working Class Audio came about is because of the experiences with that previous studio in San Francisco. Also paid off the last of the equipment debt for that studio. Yeah, it's a large chunk of money and it took a long time to, to whittle down, but made the final payment to my friends who uh, run a pro audio shop and uh, they were happy and I was happy. It was definitely a cause for celebration. That's uh, that's where I'm at and uh, I'm really excited to be able to tell you that. And let me just give you some words of inspiration. If you are a recording professional, still struggling and you're deep in debt, let me tell you, there is light at the end of the tunnel. You just have to chip away at it bit by bit and you have to plan and you have to become very disciplined. You know, if there is a piece of gear around your studio that is that, well, I might use it one of these days. You know, it's better to just get out of debt as fast as you possibly can. Sell off whatever gear you're not using. If, if you're using a piece of gear and it's bringing you income, great. Or maybe you have a piece of gear that could potentially bring you income. Utilize it. Make it, make it work for you. But either way, get out of debt, focus on financial stability for your recording practice as as the backbone of your recording practice, because then you don't make decisions based on desperation. So that is my rant for today. So uh, here's to the rest of you who are almost debt free. And uh, I wish you luck. Just uh, keep plugging away at it.
Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. It's time to uh, jump into our interview. So I present to you David Streit here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for uh, taking the time out to chat with me. And it's great to meet you. So welcome. Thank you so much, Matt. I'm a listener to the podcast. And I'm a fan. So it's an honor to be here. So thank you. We'll just jump right in. You have been doing this for a little over 30 years now at this point. You're based in Portland, Oregon. From what I understand, you got your start uh, working in clubs and venues in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. That's right. Tell me about that. So I was in college. It was a right place at the right time kind of situation. I was at the University of Louisville and the student activities department there had its own venue and they were doing several shows a week, you know, two shows a week maybe with bands playing. And I kind of 
fell into that. I already had an interest in show production because I did high school theater and whatnot. But there was this group of people at school that were doing shows and I love music. And I started learning sound from the people who had already been there a few years. And, and that was kind of my start and uh, moved on from there. Did that for several years. I didn't even know when I started college that audio engineering was a, a career possibility over a couple of years. Started reading Mix Magazine and got really interested in recording and found out I could go to school and get a degree in recording and, and um, transferred down to Middle Tennessee State University where I did that, which was amazing. And then stayed in Nashville after I graduated and, and started working there. Well, what did you think of Nashville and how did it compare to Louisville? Interesting. In some ways, the fields of the city are similar, like the weather's similar mm-hmm. in Nashville. You know, I don't know. It, it was definitely a lot more, you know, music industry stuff going on in Nashville. It was a good place to be. And it was nice to be close enough to Louisville that I could, you know, go home on a weekend and see my parents and friends and stuff like that too. So it wasn't too far. When you're at Middle Tennessee State University, what was that recording program like? And how how do you think it might compare to recording programs of today? That's a good question. One obvious difference is that Pro Tools wasn't a viable recording format. The hard disk recording wasn't a viable multi-track format when I was in school. So we used analog tape a lot and we had digital multi-track tape machines. So those were just differences in the industry, really, you know, anywhere you might have gone to school. Um, there are a lot more audio school programs today than there were then. That has just exploded, it seems like, which which is interesting because the, the jobs, at least the formal jobs as we think of them, have sort of gone away mm-hmm. or, or not totally gone away, but it, it's a lot harder. I think there are fewer slots available for a lot more people that are probably coming out of school. Although that's when I think of music recording, I, I think there are other things that, that sure have been talked about on your podcast. You know, there's audio for video games and there's certainly audio for uh, video and all kinds of stuff. So there are things out there. You know, that's the way schools in general have changed too. I think those kind of options in terms of you can take a class, you know, in audio for video games now, and that wasn't offered when I was at school. In way, ways that different, differed from other schools, yeah, I, I don't know that it was that different from another four-year college that would have uh, an audio degree. It, it was a particularly good place for me to be at the time. The, the faculty that I learned from were great. We had good facilities in terms of studios and stuff like that. But yeah, I had friends who went to Belmont University in, in Nashville, and they had good experiences too. I think uh, school is, a, is one of those things you get out of it, what you put into it kind of thing. Absolutely, um, yeah. And, and MTSU was a really good choice for me. One difference, it was a state school and and my tuition was really reasonable. Hmm. It was easy to manage paying tuition, which is another thing that's changed, I think, in where we are now in the present day. I think tuition probably anywhere you go to school is is a little more uh, or maybe a lot more prohibitive. Once you graduated, did you stay in Nashville for a period of time and get involved there? I did. I actually left for a short period of time, which I don't even put on my my resume. I, I stayed in Nashville for probably about six months. And I moved to Boulder, Colorado, just because I loved Colorado and I wanted to make a go of it there. And I I ended up staying for about seven months in Colorado and there just wasn't enough work. It was awesome. I love Colorado, but I came back to Nashville because I realized I needed to be in a place where it was going to be more conducive to getting employment and work. Um, that was a good move too. Actually, before I had left Nashville, I interviewed and you know pursued job things and and did freelance work, but didn't have a steady gig. And but I had interviewed for a, a staff position at Quad Studios in Nashville. Didn't get the job, but kind of 
clicked with uh, one of the guys there, Dave Latta, who was the, the lead technician at that studio. And, and so I stayed in touch with him. I decided to leave Colorado and move back about a month, maybe uh, maybe two months after I came back from Colorado. I got a call one day and it was Dave from Quad Studios. And he's like, we've, we've got a job. Do you want it? And I was like, uh, yeah, yes, I do. <laughs> and that was the beginning of about a year and a half as a staff assistant at Quad, which was great. A really good learning experience, just getting to assist brilliant engineers from the Nashville recording community who would come in and do sessions. And I'd get to help them out and look over their shoulder and see how they did things and really uh, build a good foundation of, for recording skills. I mean, I guess I had built a foundation at school as well, but there are other things that you learn on sessions that you can't learn in school, I think. Do you carry those lessons learned from Nashville to this very day with you in, in your recording practice? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can even think of a few specific ones. People talk about your, your bag of tricks that you have. And you know every session that you're on, you, you might learn something new or see a new way of doing things or come across a particular situation and remember how you solve that. And years later, when you're in a situation, in a, in a session and something comes up, you might not remember where you learned that specific approach or this is going to work, but your grab bag of experience informs how you deal with any problem or any situation or anything that might come up. So yeah, all that stuff was was crucial and, and, and stays with me to this day. One specific thing that comes to mind when you ask that question, there was an engineer named Brent King who worked at Quad a lot, and, and I learned a lot from him over many sessions. And I remember specifically one day there was an issue about to get started on a session. The musicians were in the room and one of the channels wasn't working. And of course, in school, they taught us a very step-by-step problem-solving troubleshooting method where, okay, you replace this cable and see if that was the problem. Then you do this and see. And that's a good way to, to really zero in and figure out what's wrong with the situation. But Brent told me, no, I need you to go out there and just replace the whole chain from microphone through cable to everything because we need this to work quickly because there's a bunch of musicians in the room waiting on us. And that was something, you know, a very different approach from troubleshooting that you would find in school. But in that situation, the most important thing was to get up and going quickly. And there would be time later, you know, I could set that stuff aside and and after things were going along, I could test each cable and find out what was actually wrong because you don't want to put a bad cable back into circulation or whatever, obviously. That's an example of a lesson I carry with me to this day, for sure. Wow, I like that. Just get rid of the whole damn thing. I don't know if he called it this or if I came up, heard the name somewhere else. I think of it as the shotgun approach to troubleshooting. You just replace everything and get it going because it's crucial that you not leave the clients or the musicians sitting there waiting as much as you can. I mean, uh, you know, you, you also, uh, another thing I learned early on is how to judge a room, how to judge a situation, how to feel out what's going on. You know, there's sometimes when it's a little more relaxed, whatever. And if it takes five minutes or 10 minutes to get things going, it's not as big of a deal. And there are other times when it's really not good to, you know, you want to minimize absolutely any kind of wait time for the musicians and the producer and the clients. Eventually you left Nashville and you came out to California. I did. I actually did a short stint in Connecticut. Mm. I left Nashville and I moved to Connecticut and there wasn't much of a music scene where I was living in Connecticut. I did some corporate audio, some, you know, I, I ended up doing some live sound reinforcement for like 
Uh, Pfizer was nearby. We did some meetings there and things like that. And I did a fair amount of location sound for video, basically following a camera person around with a mixer strapped to my waist and a, a boom pole and maybe some wireless uh, lav mics hanging out on talent, whoever they were for that particular shoot. Um, which is something I'd never done before. I ended up meeting a guy who did that professionally, and he had so much work that he needed somebody to help him take all the calls that he was getting. And so he brought me on and taught me that world. And that was an interesting experience. It was a uh, something different from what I'd done before and, and sort of a different aspect of audio. So I did that for about a year and a half and then was really missing working with music on a regular basis. Mm. For context, I moved up to Connecticut because I, I met a woman and fell in love and she lived up there and I went up there to join her and neither of us were professionally happy where we were at. The town we were living in, we had some great friends. It was a it was a really nice social situation, uh, which was awesome. But um, neither of us were professionally happy in, in Connecticut. So we started thinking about where we might go and Santa Cruz, California ended up being the place. Um, she got a nice job out there and there was a music scene and it's a cool town. And so we moved out there together. So that's how I ended up on the West Coast. What did you find for work in Santa Cruz? It's a smallish town, but a lot of music for that size. And there were venues putting on shows on a regular basis. And I fairly quickly found work doing live sound at concerts, which I had done in the past. Started meeting musicians and started making inroads towards getting some recording work. I've found that any place I've moved, actually, I've moved a few times since I got out of Nashville. And any place I've gone to, it seems like it's easier and quicker to get live sound work. Maybe there's more of that going on. For whatever reason, it's just easier to get that work. So I started doing that right away and started getting to know musicians in the community. Josephson Microphones are located in Santa Cruz. Yeah. And I met, just randomly met those guys early on. David Gordon, who uh, is one of the principals at Josephson, had a space, a studio space in town and invited me to sort of join in with that. So I ended up putting my gear in at his studio and started doing sessions there. And it was really cool. So that I had a place to work out of then um, for recording. And that was really cool. So I did that for, uh, I guess I was in, in Santa Cruz around eight years. What drove the decision to leave Santa Cruz? The woman who had become my wife and I separated eventually. And so I wasn't tied to Santa Cruz anymore, although I really liked it. I stuck around for a few years after that. Um, but started thinking about you know, maybe getting to a place where there was more of a music scene, where there was more going on. And when I was in Santa Cruz, I kept working with these bands from Portland, Oregon, who would come through on tour. And it just seemed like there was a lot of cool stuff going on there and all these great bands and uh, started thinking about that. I went up to Portland a couple of times to just kind of explore and, and check out the city and, and liked it. And uh, so eventually moved up here. Portland's such a great place. I've spent a lot of time there. Yeah. Yeah, I really love the city. The music community is incredible. A lot of great bands, but also um, really great people. And it's nice to be a part of that. It's interesting, too. It's, it is going through a change. I was there a few months back doing a record mm -hmm. at uh, Jackpot. And I will say I hadn't been there in a number of years. And it was my first time back after a while. And I did notice definitely development and some change. 
happening? I've been in Portland about four and a half years now, so I don't have the long perspective, but a lot of my friends talk a lot about how much Portland has changed with the influx of people. It's it's a booming town because it's a, it's a great town. It's a good place to be and, and it attracts people. But with that, I guess, expansion of size and population comes changes. And, and I, I think it has changed, you know, from obvious things like traffic to rent, real estate has gone up considerably in the past decade which is an interesting dynamic. That sort of thing does affect the music community. Uh, Musicians traditionally aren't making a lot of money. And so in a situation where rent is rising, it, it becomes more difficult to make things work. Back in the day, Portland was a very affordable place to live, which helped it act as an incubator for a music scene. And that dynamic is changing and has changed. And there's still a music scene. There's still stuff happening. But I think it's not as easy for musicians who are living here they have to devote more of their time to earning money to pay their bills and things like that. As you were saying, as the rents go up, musicians have to devote more of their time to trying to make money, which takes away from their playing time, rehearsing time, perfecting their craft time. When I started going there, I had a former bandmate who would fly me up to play drums with her. And the guitar player in this situation was a waiter and I think his wife was a waitress. That that was their day gig, and they had a house. Like you uh-huh. could you could have a job like that and have a house. And I kind of kicked myself in a way for not thinking ahead and thinking, oh, maybe maybe we should buy a house up in Portland now. Uh huh. Well, if I had a time machine, we could we could change a few things. Well, totally. I mean, it's <laughs> the same way I kick myself for you know when I when I was first getting into recording. I first moved down to Nashville in the mid 90s. Not that I had a lot of money, but I could have maybe bought some Neve modules or or old Neumann tube mics or things like that. Like if I'd really scrimped and saved, I might have been able to buy something like that that has gone up in value tremendously since then. But, you know, hindsight is 2020. (laughs) (laughs) So your time in Portland, what are your observations of the recording scene there? There's a whole lot of bands in town, artists, musicians. There are a lot of people that have recording studios. And that's another thing over time. I think that that has has blown up. Like I was saying earlier, we were talking earlier about how there are more schools that offer recording programs. There are a lot more people as the technology has changed and it's become easier to make records with a, a smaller investment in equipment. There are a lot more people that offer services of making records. I think, and that, I think that's probably probably true anywhere you are, but it's certainly true in Portland. So there are a lot of people that are available to help you make records if you're a musician. There are certainly a lot of musicians that record themselves, but the there seems to be, you know, a number of larger studios in town, you know, bigger than than somebody at their house set up with, you know, a, a computer and some gear. And it's hard to tell for sure, but it seems like there's enough going on that studios can stay at least somewhat booked. It's it's different from a place like Nashville. I think there are more of the sorts of projects that might have label support, for instance, in Nashville. So things with a real budget. In Portland, it's almost entirely, and probably in in any in non-music industry town, and probably a similar thing. But in Portland, there are a lot more artists that are funding their own recording projects and things on a tighter budget. So that is definitely a part of the dynamic. There are a lot of bands that would probably love to book time at a a studio and and work with an engineer, but they're recording themselves because they don't necessarily see a return on their investment, at least directly from a recording. You know, if they they pour money into a recording, they don't see that they're going to sell 
records and CDs and make a lot of money back. So I think it makes them hesitant to invest a lot of money in a, in a recording uh, situation and, and maybe might make them decide to try things at home or do part of it at home. A lot of that goes on, I think. But all that being said, there, there are, uh, there's a great scene here. There's a lot of bands. And, and so there's a good deal of recording that goes on. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. What do you think drives a band to see the value in hiring an engineer and doing things in a higher quality way than they could do themselves, whether they come into the studio on their own or do it in their, in their home studio, but to actually like call like you or me or one of our other peers to bring them in, what is it that changes there? Do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, one one scenario that I've definitely had direct experience of is is they do it themselves. They make a record by themselves, or maybe they go to their friend who has some gear and, and says, "Hey, I'll, you're my friend. Let's just make a record. I'll do it for free." And you know, maybe their friend is kind of an, an entry level of becoming a recording engineer, and and so they go one of those routes, and um, they get uh, you know a, a result that they're not entirely happy with. They don't love the way it sounds. They want something better, and and next time they find a person like yourself or myself who has more experience and maybe can deliver the result that they had in mind the first time. Um, so I definitely, I've had that situation happen um, with, with bands, you know, that I've been talking with and they, they decided we're going to do it ourselves or whatever they do. And, and I've gotten a call six months later, like, you know, we want something that sounds more professional this time. Uh, let's talk about making a record together. So I've had that happen. I think that's one way it happens. I think sometimes uh, artists, bands who are more serious about pursuing their career, uh, more serious about becoming successful, whatever that might mean, because I think it can mean different things for different people. But some of them are going to see it as an investment. And maybe even if they're not going to make money directly from sales of the record that they make, they might see it as an investment in terms of spreading their name or the awareness of what they do, uh, getting more of a fan base, 
using it as an instrument to get fans to come to shows. But if they're viewing it that way, maybe they're, some of them are more willing to invest in making a high-quality recording. And th- that's another difference between a town like Nashville and a town like Portland. I think there are probably more people in a place like Nashville who are very focused and driven and devoting all of their energy to, quote-unquote, making it. Mm. There are definitely artists like that in Portland as well. But there might be more that are taking a more casual approach which is all good, you know. It, it, some people are in it just to have fun. They want to play some music, and uh, and that's totally cool. And there's a whole there's a spectrum from that to very focused on a career and and trying to get ahead in terms of some kind of success in the music industry. And there's everything in between, and all of that's legit. And there's pros and cons to sort of both sides of that. But the people that are on the end of the spectrum that are super focused and really intense about it and devoting all their energy, I think those people are more likely to invest and and see the value of investing money and in, in making a recording or in doing other things too that yeah. are music business related. Being in a band is a challenge in itself because you you know I mean, you know, to keep everybody going in the same direction. So if you couple that the randomness of the dynamics of a band with the incentive it's like, why are we doing this? You know, and, and as you say in Nashville, yeah. there's more incentive because there's an industry that supports that. Where in Portland, that same industry is not really there on the same level as Nashville. Yeah, yeah. And there are more people in Nashville who moved to Nashville specifically to pursue music. Although people do move to Portland to pursue music too, because it is, I mean, I did. And and there's it's a great scene and interesting bands. It's it's an interesting dynamic too. I think bands develop in a just a different way in Portland than they might in Nashville because of that music industry presence. And, and so I think it's interesting to see artists developing away from the direct influence of the music industry. And I'm not going to say one's better than the other. I think, again, there are pros and cons to both situations, but there might be a little more room for something quirky in a place like Portland versus Nashville. Although that can happen in Nashville too, for sure. Individual cases are always different from case to case. But it's it's just a different dynamic. Yeah, I mean, we we could actually have a whole show just on analyzing those different ecosystems and how they affect the musicians in those ecosystems and the decisions those bands make in terms of their their careers, their recording choices, all of that. Absolutely, and and it's a that's a complex dynamic, and yeah, we could talk about it for a long time, I'm sure. Tell me about the survivability here for you. And what's what's been your experience, and how have you been able to uh, keep things together? Do, do you have any side gigs or diversification involved? What what is it that helps you survive in Portland? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't have any side gigs per se. I, my diversification is that I do recording and I do live sound. It's been that way through most of my career. And when I was in Nashville, I did mostly recording and very little live sound, but I still did a little bit. And here in Portland, I do a lot more live sound than I do recording, probably. I think just because there's more of that work available. There are recording engineers who specialize in just that and stay pretty busy here. But for me, you know, it's it's definitely been useful to be on both sides of audio engineering, I guess, or two sides. I mean, there's other sides of audio engineering. But to do live sound and, and recording, it's very complementary to each other. A lot of my recording clients I've met through bands I worked with at a show. I mix their show and and we get to talking and they find out I do recording work too. And then 
when it's time for them to make a record, they think of maybe working with me because they enjoyed working with me at, at the show and maybe over a number of shows. And, you know, some months I have a recording project going on and I'm busy with that. And other months it's kind of slower on the recording side, but then maybe I'm doing more live sound work. So it, it's, it's good to be diverse in that way, I think. How do the two sides influence one another for you in terms of your techniques for recording, your techniques for live? And is, is there a blending between those two worlds? Absolutely. There's a lot of sort of crossover of, I guess, influence between the two. Some, some of the basic skills are, you know, troubleshooting is the same, whether you're in the studio or in a live situation basic signal flow, understanding how to connect equipment together and make it all work. All of that's the same. People skills is one of the most important things in our profession, and that's the same, whether you're in the studio or in a live situation. Things I've learned about studio recording, I use in, in a live situation all the time, and vice versa. Um, they definitely inform each other. Um, you know, In a live situation, I have to be able to get a mix quickly. A lot of times I'm working with bands I've never worked with before. We had a short sound check and now it's the beginning of the show and I have to dial it in pretty fast and get it sounding good as quickly as possible. Hopefully by the first chorus, it's, the, the mix is pretty good. And then maybe dial in the details as we go and kind of fine tune it. But so, so knowing how to mix in that way um, is also useful in the studio. Even though, you know, if I'm mixing a song, I'm recording and we're doing a record project and I probably take a day to mix a song a lot of times. It's a much slower approach, but there's still situations when you have to dial in something quickly and it's useful to be able to do that. And sort of the, the skill set of uh, hearing music that you've never heard before and trying to discern how to mix that, how to approach it, that, that's definitely useful in, in the studio and in, in a live situation. And mic techniques too. I mean, the Glenn Johns drum mic technique that uh, that is kind of popular, where you use, you have three mics, and sort of two overheads, one's off to the side, and and then a kick drum mic. And I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with that. But if you're not, you can Google Glenn Johns drum miking, and you'll find all kinds of information. I'm sure. When I was getting started, I would have thought, oh, you, that's not anything you'd ever use in a live situation, because a, a lot of a lot of live situations for probably obvious reasons, uh, you're using more of a close miking sort of technique and less of a room miking kind of technique. So in terms of that spectrum of close to far, in a live concert situation, you're using a lot more close miking. And the Glenn Johns thing, you wouldn't think, okay, that's something I'm going to use in a live situation. But I was doing a show one day and we were talking about the drummer's approach and, and I can't remember the sp specific things that he said, but I just thought, oh, Glenn Johns would be pretty cool. That, that mic tech would be pretty cool in this particular situation. And knowing sort of the dynamics of the band and what's going to be happening musically, I think I can get away with that. I'm going to do that. It'll be cool. The drummer specifically didn't want a whole bunch of mics on his kit. From talking to him, I got the impression that he was, he was going to be a, a balanced player that was going to kind of internally balance the different elements of his drum kit. And so I did that Glenn Johns thing and I probably added, you know, I, I'm sure I put a snare mic up and a couple other, you know, mics. It wasn't strictly just Glenn Johns, but that's an example of a situation where something that is considered a studio technique was used in a live situation and it worked great. Glenn Johns plus. Glenn Johns Plus, which I think a lot of people when they do Glenn Johns probably do actual Glenn Johns Plus. I know when when I'm recording drums, uh, I often put up extra mics, sometimes just for, to try out, like I'll put up an extra mic just to try a new technique and record that on to another track. And maybe I'll use it in the mix and maybe I won't. 
or, or I put up mics all the time, just just in case. Do you ever involve a live recording rig in your live sound gigs? Yes, I do. I have a live recording rig that sometimes I get hired just to make a recording of a band. I'm not even the live engineer for the for that date. And sometimes bands, when they when I'm doing sound on a gig, they'll ask if well, is it possible to make a recording too? And and yes, it is. So yeah, and actually that doesn't come up that often, but it is something that I do from time to time. A lot of times bands want just a board mix for reference or something like that. And yeah, that's a, a simple two-track recorder. But sometimes they want to make a record out of it. I did a record for Howlin' Rain. A few years ago, I was still living in Santa Cruz and they were going to do a two-night run at Cafe Du Nord and hired me to come up and just do the you know track, do a multi-track recording of, of both nights. And so I brought my rig up and did that and it was super fun. And uh, turned out to be a great record. What kind of rig is that? I've expanded over time. I think what I have now, probably a little bit different from what I had then, but what I have now, I've got the Lynx Aurora, the 16-channel converter, and then I have Midas makes an 8-channel single rack space mic pre unit that has digital outputs on it. So I have three of those, and the Lynx Aurora has 16 channels of analog input, but there's also 16 more channels of AES digital in. And so I can hook up two of my uh, Midas's to the digital inputs, and then another Midas goes in analog, and then I've got this Yamaha eight-channel thing, eight more channels of microphone preamps. So I have 32 channels of microphone preamps going into 32 channels of conversion, and then I've got a rack that has four of those eight-channel radial mic splitters. So I've got a splitter, a transformer-isolated split that I can bring with me. And so that's usually the way I prefer, you know, some people, you could, a lot of modern digital consoles, you can take digital output and get a multi-track recording that way, but you're kind of dependent on the live sound engineer's choices in terms of gain level. And it's really better to have, if you can, it, you know, it's more involved and you have to carry more equipment, but if you can have a totally separate system that's not dependent upon what the live sound is doing at all. That's definitely better. You have more control and a higher quality result, hopefully. So yeah, I have a transformer split that I can interface wherever the mics plug in on stage to the house system, a laptop and my Lynx converters and Midas mic pre's and a few Yamaha mic pre's. I'll probably bring a few microphones with me, like audience mics and things like that, that aren't going to be normally up in a live situation. I, I usually use most of whatever the live sound engineer puts up. Depending upon the dynamics of the situation, I might consult with them about that, or I might just, whatever they've got, I'll use and be happy about it. And then maybe add a few more of my own mics to supplement whatever I think I need. Record to Pro Tools, and that's my rig. Do you have any uh, particular advice for those who would like to do that in terms of the best practices for dealing with the other engineer and being being respectful and, and such. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's an area where it helps that I've done the live sound stuff as well and I understand <laughs> what they're going through. If you can, advance the show. Don't be a surprise when you show up and say, hey, I'm going to make a recording. You know, it's better if the live sound engineer just knows in advance, hey, this is going to happen. Um, and they can be prepared. Maybe they have certain things they need to be prepared with physically, equipment-wise, maybe just mentally prepared. They know this This is coming. It's not a surprise. So that's helpful for sure. And, it, you know, you can coordinate about gear and, and interfacing and things like that. You know, some venues might have a, a split that's available. 
that you can use. They might have a split between the front of house and the monitor desk, and maybe there's a third split available that they're happy to let you plug into if you want to, and that can be cool. Advancing is always a good idea for any live situation, probably any studio situation too. Getting technical details worked out up front, knowing what equipment you're going to need to bring, knowing how long, if you can figure it out, knowing how long the cable run is from you know, where your splitter is going to be to where you're going to set up your recording rig. When I can, I try to go to the venue in advance, just scope things out, figure out where I'm going to set up, figure out where the electrical power is that I'm going to use, things like that. Cable length runs, things like that. So advancing is great. Make sure the live sound engineer knows you're coming at least. Be super friendly in any any communication you have with them, which is also good advice for any kind of music-related audio engineer situation. Always just be really friendly. Day of, you know, get there early. You know, don't show up right before the set's going to start. You know, at that point, they're really busy. And also, as a live sound engineer, you're always a little bit nervous about anybody plugging into your rig because is that going to introduce some kind of ground hum issue? And, you know, if it happens right before the show starts, sometimes you're kind of like, I don't think we should do this right now because it might jeopardize the show. And so as if you're going to be the location recording engineer, get there early, you know, get there when the band loads into soundcheck or maybe even before that, introduce yourself right away. Hopefully you've already communicated with the live sound engineer ahead of time, but if not, introduce yourself, have a really laid back attitude, let them know that you're going to work with them. You're not going to cause some kind of issues. You're not going to make their life harder. Be accommodating, feel the situation out. Yeah, you know, a, a lot of times when I've been in that situation, the live sound engineer is super cool. They're they're trying to help me out. I'm trying to help them out. We're all working together. It's great. Um, hopefully, it's that kind of situation. But like any kind of music situation that you're in, you kind of have to feel out the personalities and figure out how to interact with those people and and get along and have a good working relationship. How do you base your pricing on something like that? Let's face it. I mean, yeah, it's a, a few hours of work on that day, but there's a lot of prep work. There's a lot of there's just a lot of hours that pile up. Yeah, even, you know, a lot of times, like I was talking about advancing, that takes time. You're, you might be on the phone or doing emails or trying to track somebody's information down and figuring things out, and that might take a few hours, absolutely. Yeah, when I'm figuring out my pricing, I try to build in some time for that kind of stuff. I approach the recording, and if there is going to be a mix, that's a separate thing. I might offer them a package deal or whatever, definitely account for that time separately. The mix down of a multi-track recording that's live can take quite a bit of time. But as far as the the recording part of it, yeah, I definitely, I talk to the artist about what they want and what hopefully find out what the artists, the band's setup is going to look like, how many inputs are there, how many instruments, that kind of stuff. Start thinking about that, make sure I'm bringing enough stuff with me to cover everything. During that advanced situation, I'm also kind of putting a plan together how I'm going to do things, start thinking about, well, how much time is this going to take? Like I said, I like to go to the venue beforehand, so that's going to take some time to scout things out. You know, there's time to put pull all the equipment together. You know, you make a checklist. That's another good piece of advice. Make a checklist, sit down and think about every piece of wire you're going to need for this recording rig that you're putting together. Uh, and maybe you have a standard recording rig that you just take out with you and kind of the parts are all there. But still thinking about how many inputs are there? How many extra mics am I going to need to bring? Do I need to bring some extra mic stands? Okay, how many mic cables? Okay, I should probably bring some spare cables in case it turns out one of them isn't working when I get there. And things like that. And you make a checklist. Maybe the night before the gig, I'm at, you know, at my place 
pulling all this stuff together or checking off the stuff on my checklist to make sure I don't forget something that I'm going to need at the recording. But so during that whole advancing process, you're kind of kind of working out in your head, okay, I'm, I'm going to spend two hours going to the venue and doing you know a, a pre-session visit to check things out. And, and I'm spending a couple hours putting details together and you just kind of build all that into your price that you quote to the client. You know, I, I usually have an hourly, hourly rate in mind in my head that I kind of base things off of, or at least a range. And you also have to take into account what do I think this client can afford and what's reasonable and what's going to scare them off and what's going to make, what, what seems fair. And so you kind of have to jumble all the, those numbers in your head and kind of come out with a quote that you give to the client. You know what I always get freaked out about is... Um... I'm very security conscious. And if I'm by myself, unloading a car with a bunch of gear, you know, you got to make trips in and, you know, you're going to inevitably leave something in the car. Somebody could be easily watching the car and, and, oh, he's gone in. Oh, this is the perfect time. Let's, let's hit the car. I know that's a little paranoid, but that's totally real in an urban environment where you're parked on totally a city real. street and, you know, there could just be somebody strolling around and they see you and... It, it could all go downhill very rapidly. Absolutely. No, it's a real situation uh, that you have to think about. And part of it is judging what kind of environment you're in. Are there a lot of people around? You know, if if you're pulled up right in front of the venue and there, there are bouncers at the door, that's probably a pretty safe situation. Or if you had to park, you know, a block away around the corner and there's nobody on the streets, that might be a little sketchier. So yeah, you have to be aware of that kind of stuff. I have lots of musician friends who've had their van broken into outside a venue. Try not to leave anything valuable in the car, or at least not anything in sight. You have to think about that. When I was in Connecticut, I did some gigs in New York City where we went into the city and we were on a street unloading a van into a place where we were going to do a video shoot. And we had to be extremely conscious. I mean, that, that was a very real issue, worrying about you know, equipment security. So yeah, you have to be conscious of that. Maybe you hire an assistant. Maybe you bake that into the the price that you quote to the client. You know, depending on the situation and the avail available budget, oftentimes having an assistant is extremely useful and help make things go smoothly. And and a lot of times there's not budget for that, and you can't do that. You know, laptops walk off all the time, not all the time, but it happens. And it's a very easy thing to pick up and and somebody tuck under their arm and take with them. I have one of those Kensington lock wire things that most laptops have a little port that you can put a locking cable into. And I have one of those that I take with me and I, I chain my laptop to the table or to some heavy rack or something just to make it more difficult to walk off with that. You also have a home studio. Yes. And is that primarily a mixing, mastering, editing kind of situation? Or, or do you have the ability to do overdubs and do you? I definitely do overdubs. The, the studio is mostly set up for mixing. Yeah. Uh, and that's the primary intent of it. But I definitely do overdubs as well. Uh, certainly, like vocals are a thing that often get done, or guitar overdubs. I actually have a Hammond organ uh, at my home studio, which is, gets used sometimes. So things like that. I, there's not a lot of space, so I certainly couldn't track there, and I don't want to. But it's great to have a more affordable option to do some overdubs, or or just you know you, you book whatever four days to track a record, and you think you're going to get all the overdubs done, but you don't. My home studio is. One thing about it that's great is it's super flexible because I'm the only person who uses it. Whereas some other studios, you know, you need some extra time and you look at the calendar and you realize, well, that studio is booked out for the next week. We can't come in then. Having the ability to do overdubs in my studio is very useful. Is your studio in your house? 
It is. It is. I have a spare room that's kind of large and mostly set up for mixing. So I've got a fader control surface. I'm mixing in the box entirely, Mm -hmm. but I've got a fader surface and the room is set up, you know, symmetrically for for good monitoring for imaging. And do you primarily uh, associate yourself with hallowed halls? I do. So that's a, a really cool recording studio here in Portland. It's a very large space. Uh, it's built in an old library. There's uh, natural light. It's got a great vibe. It's a great place to track. And I've got a lot of my equipment in there installed, and I have an arrangement with them. And mostly I take bands there when I'm tracking. For the listener, just as a reminder, we had uh, Justin Phelps on, who is also a, an engineer over at uh, Hallowed Halls. He was WCA number 82. Yeah, and Justin actually is the person that invited me in to, to get involved with Hallowed Halls. And he and uh, Jordan Richter, who is a great guy that you should probably have on your show. Um, uh, Jordan is a friend of mine from Nashville, actually, and he moved to Portland before I did. And he and Justin were both involved with Hallowed Halls at the time and knew that I was looking for a place to you know, use as a home base. And so they invited me. And we actually, all three of us previously had been at a studio called Cloud City Sound. And that was another thing, like Jordan and Justin were there and then they invited me to come in there and Justin had left to start Hallowed Halls. And then when Cloud City uh, was going to be closing down, so I was looking for a place and, and they invited me to come over to Hallowed Halls. And Justin's a good guy, yeah. And he, he works out of Hallowed Halls all the time. He has the B room over there pretty much as his space, although he does rent it out to other people when he's not using it. How do you see the future for yourself? Where does this all go? Are you content? Do you want to see it change? Do you want to see it progress? What does that look like for you? How do you think about that? That's a good question, which I think about that quite a bit. I definitely want to see it progress. Looking for more clients, more work is always a thing. I've been freelance pretty much since 1999. And you find that clients sort of come and go. So you're always looking for new clients and trying to keep the work moving along and keep that going. So that's always a a thing about thinking about how am I going to attract new clients on a continual basis, really. I think about that a lot. I think about, you know, as a freelancer, you have busy times and you have slow times. And and that's, I think, a natural cycle of freelancing. And during the slow times, you you think about, wow, well, is my phone going to start ringing again? You know, how how is this going to work out? And so far it does always seems to work out one way or another, but you're always thinking about what, 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 what if it doesn't, what if, what if the clients don't come back? What if I don't get more work? You know, what, what else would I do? Or, or what are my strategies for how to attract more clients? Or maybe I should think about going into another aspect of audio work. Or So I think about this stuff fairly frequently. And um, I don't know if I come up with good answers all the time, but... How do you see yourself in in old age? Uh, And I ask because it's been on my own mind lately. I I I turned 49 in November and and I just, I'm starting to think, okay, well, you know, life doesn't last forever. So Mm -hmm. what am Mm -hmm. I going to do here? Yeah, I think about that too. And yeah, I'm in my late 40s as well. And you start thinking about too, like the live sound thing is pretty active. You're moving stuff around a lot, which is probably good. It's it's good that I have an active job where I'm not sitting in a chair all day long. Someday I'm going to get to an age where this isn't practical anymore, or you know, I don't have the energy to do this, or I'm just too old, or whatever. And hopefully that's a long way off. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You know, and part of it is 
trying to put money away. And I have an IRA that I try to put some money into. I, I can't always put as much in as I'd like to. Often can't put as much in as I'd like to. But but you have to think ahead. Uh, you know, someday you might not be able to do the things you're doing right now, or you might not want to at some point. Although I I think I'm going to be doing this as I get pretty old. I want to keep doing this. I, I love what I do. It is something to think about. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. In, in my 20s and my 30s, I really, um, I had kind of a, a carefree attitude about it all. And mm-hmm. as I get older, you know, there is, you know, the great concerns. There's the financial concerns, the health concerns, the long, you know, your own mortality. And then do you ever yourself think about, well, when I die... Do you ever think about like, what am I leaving behind? Am I doing something? Am I like creating stuff that people are going to enjoy? And I don't know, mortality has been on my mind lately for some strange reason. Yeah, no, it, I, I think that's, I bet that's something we all think about from time to time, at least as we get older, maybe not in our 20s or whatever. But yeah, I think about that. Sometimes I think about, you know, you, you, you sometimes have thoughts about what am I doing in this life? You know, what am I doing with my life? Is this meaningful? You know, is it just transitory? Is anybody ever going to listen to these recordings again? You know, hopefully. Sometimes when I'm at a, at a show, I'm mixing a concert, I, you know, if I'm not too hectic, sometimes I take a moment and just think about, I try to remember to look around me and notice there are a bunch of people here having a really great experience and that I'm contributing to making that happen. And that's a very transient thing, a live show. It's going to be over, you know, at the end of the night. And so that's not a legacy in the same way. But, you know, sometimes I think about what's the value of what I do. I I love what I do and I really enjoy it. But in terms of, you know, some people are doctors and nurses and and the value of that is tremendously obvious. People do things with their lives to really make a difference in the world. And I think about that sometimes like, am I doing anything that's like really worthwhile? And and, um, I've had friends say to me, you know, you you bring people, you help bring people enjoyment. And, and I think that is valuable. Hmm. I hope it is anyway. <laughs> so so the, there's that kind of legacy. And actually, I, had a, I went back down to Santa Cruz. I'd, the past several years, I've had the opportunity to go do sound for the Monterey Jazz Festival, hmm. which is great. It's a really great thing to do and super fun and a great experience. And I get to visit Santa Cruz and catch up with some friends while I'm down there too. And I met up with an artist that I'd done a couple of records for and uh, hadn't talked to in a few years. We just caught up a little bit. He told me, I guess he's had some medical problems uh, the past few years and hasn't really been able to play music. But fortunately, he's getting better. He's going to start playing again. But he just told me how much it meant to him to have these recordings that were a document of the the band that he was in and the music that he was making. And that's something he'll have forever. And it made him so happy. And that was immensely meaningful to me and, and a really nice, just a really nice thing to hear. So there's that kind of legacy too. It'd be super cool to to engineer some record that was a huge hit that people are going to listen to, you know, for decades to come. And I I don't know if I have anything like that really. I've assisted on some things like that probably, but whatever. So there's that kind of legacy, but there's also the legacy of like more personal, meaningful kind of thing like this band that I worked with. And I think hopefully the other recordings I've done with with other artists are meaningful in that way. Like they put a lot of work into creating this music and the there's a value in having a permanent record of it so there's that kind of legacy and hopefully that's uh that's a good thing to leave behind the, i think those are good bigger picture things that are important like leaving behind a good legacy in terms of you know contributions you've made to records or 
uh, a gig for somebody, a live gig. I'm starting to like look at the the decisions that nobody else sees in my life. Like, you know, how much time am I agonizing over buying a piece of gear and what I'm going to pay for it? And am I going to, you know, am I going to get yeah. it used? Am I going to get it new? Am I, you know, and when you start to look at the time you may or may not have left on this planet when it comes mm. to what we're doing, I'm starting to make decisions that are a little more about getting to the point quicker. Maybe in a similar vein. I definitely have thoughts about sort of the path not taken. Right. Kind of, you know, there's that too. My my brother um, has a family. He has three kids who are amazing. I'm going to go see them at Christmas time. I can't wait. I've gone a very different path. I don't have a family. And and I think about that sometimes. I think about what would my life have been like if I had gone down this other path. And 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 you can't do everything, obviously. You can't take both paths, really. And and I, I've been afforded the opportunity to do amazing things and have some great experiences and, and things I don't think I would want to trade in. But yeah, you think about that too. Like, well, what if I did? What if I had made that decision? Part of it is circumstantial and who you're with and who you, you know, your life partner and that kind of stuff. But what if I'd had kids and I didn't have kids? What would, what would my life have been like that, that direction? And, and you kind of wonder about those kind of things. And there's other similar kind of life choices and paths you've taken and, and things like that. So yeah, I, I think about that stuff from time to time for sure. Now, not to get morose on you or, or macabre, but, yeah. but just thinking in terms of, you know, it's like, what is important here? What are we doing? So that brings to mind, I know on the podcast, you sometimes ask about life balance kind of things. And I think a decision I made early in my career was to make time for family and friends. It's very easy in, in this profession to just be in the studio all the time and be very focused and, and to the exclusion of other things that might be important. Uh, in your case, I know you have kids, mm -hmm. um, and there's certainly all kinds of things, I'm sure, from ball games to plays to birthday parties and, and things that are important to be there for. What is important in life? And so this past uh, summer, my brother, who lives out of town, said he'd like to come in and visit me for a few days, a long weekend. And I blocked out time. I decided I'm not going to work during this time because my brother's going to be here and I'm going to spend time with him. And in the past, we've, you know, I've blocked out a couple of weeks to go on a backpacking trip with him or, or to go spend time with other friends or family, go on a vacation with my, my parents and my brother and his family and do things like that. I'm sure at points that has cost me some opportunities to do work that might have led to other things, you know, and, and expanding relationships with clients. But, you know, as at the end of my life, it, it's going to be very important that I spent time with my family and friends and that I did other things besides recording work and live sound work and things like that. So, yeah, those kind of choices are definitely something to think about. I want to piggyback on that a bit and just say, I think as audio professionals who love to get obsessed and absorbed in what we do, in order to do what you're talking about and uh, be able to get away with it without stressing too much, this is where I think the financial responsibility comes into play with making sure that you're not deep in debt and and so that you can say, you know what, I, I've got my bills paid and I've got some money in the bank you know, I may not be buying a boat anytime soon, but I can afford to take a weekend off to be with my brother or go spend, you know, time with my, my nieces and nephews or, or go hang, go backpacking with a friend. It's like, if you play your cards right within your audio world, your life outside of your audio world can be even so much more rewarding and really drive you in, in a positive way, I think. 
Absolutely. I think as a freelancer, as we were talking about earlier, it's feast or famine. Sometimes you're super busy and other times it's really slow and it goes in waves. And so you have to plan ahead for that kind of stuff. You have to, when you're making a lot of money, you have to put some aside for times when when uh, things are going to be slower. And you have to put, uh, as has been talked about, I think on this podcast before, you have to put money aside for, you're going to have to pay your taxes later and things like that too. I mean, there's a lot of financial sort of decisions you make. And I think trying to avoid debt as much as you can is, is a huge thing. Thinking about those decisions, should I buy this piece of gear? Well, maybe I should, but maybe I should not because I need to keep some cash available in case something happens, in case I don't have work next month or in, or in case a piece of gear breaks or, or, or in case I want to take that trip. And uh, I think financial liquidity equals freedom, um, freedom to make those kind of decisions and to not be tied down as much and to have a little more peace of mind. I mean, there's definitely freelance audio is not a secure job by any stretch of the imagination. And so, you know, you don't have that dependable income that you know you're going to have all the time. And to, to have any kind of peace of mind about it, you have to have, a, you know, a rainy day fund and some savings. And, you know, even if you have work, it might take a while to actually get paid. What are you going to use to pay your rent till that check comes in? Definitely part of it is trying to have some savings and uh, a cushion of some kind. And, and having that, you know, the more of that you can have, the more freedom you have to make choices and decisions and do things you'd like to do. We have to be like squirrels, man. You got to put away the nuts yep. for the winter time. Very much so. I, I will share this one little tidbit in that when buying a piece of gear, I'm at a point now where if I'm going to buy a, a, make a large purchase, I actually have an American Express that I use to buy that piece of gear because American Express tends to back up the warranty even further mm, for a piece yeah. of gear. And then really interesting. I didn't know that. But then my MO is use the card to pay for it, but then have the cash ready to pay the card immediately. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do the same. I use a credit card and I, I buy stuff with it all the time, day to day, but I pay off the balance every single month. And yeah, exactly. The The credit card is a convenience and I don't pay interest on the credit card because the interest rates are not a good way to use your money. Credit card interest rates are, are you know, it's not an efficient way to use your money. They, they take a lot of your money if you're going to pay their interest. I say use them for getting airline miles or extended warranties so you can be covered, but not as a uh, as a floating uh, point of, uh, of exactly of money. David, thank you so much. It's been a great time talking with you. There's always something new to learn from from somebody that I've never spoken to before, and uh, you are no exception. So thank you, thank you for your wisdom and, and time here on the show today. Matt, thank you so much. It's been such an honor to be here, and I really appreciate what you're doing with Working Class Audio. I've gotten a lot out of it, so thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for contributing, because now you're a part of it. So Right on. Awesome. All right. Talk to you later, David. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. 
head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. David Streit here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. And another reminder to head on over to WorkingClassAudio.com. I got to thank our friend, Mr. Cliff Truesdell, for the theme music for Working Class Audio and our friend, Mr. Chuck Smith, for his wonderful voice. Until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.